0: Amazing. 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 John chapter 11. We're going to start in verse one. Now a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister, Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now we're going to skip down to uh, all the way down to verse 34, because a bunch of stuff happens in between this moment. But I want you to see what happens when Jesus finally gets to the town that Lazarus is in. Verse 34, where have you laid him? He asked, come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. That was my favorite scripture growing up right there because my mom used to reward us with, with Reese's Cups when we could quote scripture. And I knew that one, Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Let's pray one more time together. God, thank you for these moments. We don't take them for granted. We ask that you speak to us through your word. We love you. We thank you for raising canes. And everybody said, Amen. come on, everybody said, Amen. it might be better than Chick-fil-A. I'm just saying. Amen. All right, we'll pray. We'll pray through it. We'll pray through it. Um, Anybody here, uh, you like the outdoors? Outdoors woman, outdoorsman? Uh, you like to fish? Anybody like to fish? Okay. Uh, anybody like to hunt? We got, I know we got several people who like to hunt in the room. I don't know if you have gathered this about me, but I'm not much of an outdoorsman. That wasn't supposed to be funny. Um, I'm not much of an outdoorsman. I, I don't do a lot of fishing. The only type of hunting that I do on any regular basis is hunting for deals at the Green Hills Mall. You know what I'm saying? Um, I, I'm just, it's just like not, not my thing, but, but if you're here and uh, you don't like to hunt, you're welcome here. If, if you're here and you do like to hunt, you're welcome here too. Um, we're, we're a wide variety community here in Nashville, Tennessee. We, we have hunters, non-hunters. Uh, the issue is when you grow up in a family where a lot of the people in your family enjoy those things and you don't. And so uh, several years back, my uncle, uh, well, technically he's my second cousin, his name's Troy. He's this good old boy in Georgia. And this good old boy in Georgia, he, he lived on this big piece of property and his favorite thing to do was to fish. And so he invited uh, myself, my dad, and a few other people down to his property to go on this fishing trip. And immediately I'm like, I, there's like very few things that I would rather not be doing than go on this fishing trip. But I'm, I'm trying to be positive. I'm trying to be a part of the, the bro squad, you know. And uh, I remember we woke up the first day we were there at like five o'clock in the morning because apparently fish are morning people. And we get up and I'm trying to have a positive attitude and we're walking out to the lake and I look over at my Uncle Troy and I'm trying to start a conversation with him and I'm, I'm getting excited because I know that he knows how to cook really well. And so I said, Uncle Troy, um, how are we going to cook the fish that we catch today? You know, are we going to fry them? Are we going to blacken them? Are, like, are we going to grill them and put some lemon on them? Like, like what, are we, what are we dealing with, you know? And I remember he, he kind of stopped in his tracks and he looked at me and he got super serious and he was like, Noah, this is a strict catch and release policy lake. And I just wanna pause right here and talk about what a horrible policy that is. Like, there are so many policies that need to be canceled in our country, and this is one of them. I just, this has nothing to do with my sermon, but just think about this. I was driving this morning to church, and I thought about this. I've, like, what would it be like to be a fish? Like, like, picture you are on a fish walk, okay? Just humor me for one second. You're on a fish walk with your fish spouse, your two and a half fish kids. You're just in the cul-de-sac, and then all of a sudden, shoop, there goes mom. Stairway to heaven, she's gone. Right, so you start having the celebration of life service. Things are going, you know, it's a beautiful service. Everyone's really sad. You're remembering the life of of your spouse. And then, boom, mom is back (laughs) without an eyeball. You know, it's like, it's messed up. It's messed up. So I'm thinking these things and we get out there, we're like two, three hours into fishing and uh, nobody had caught anything. And there was about five of us there. And I remember looking over at the other four guys. This is a true story. The other four guys, I'm bored out of my mind. We're three hours in, like like not a single bite on the line. But the other four guys, this is what they look like. I kid you not. <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, they're just having the time of their life. And I remember, okay, I'm gonna give this one more time. I'm gonna, I'm gonna give this one more shot. And I, if I don't catch a fish, Right now, I'm out, I'm done. And so I stood up, kind of had like this, this vision of me catching a fish in front of these other guys and being able to just brag on that the rest of my life. And so I stand up and I go to, I go to cast, which is a technical fishing term. I go to cast. And uh, when I did, the hook got caught in my uh, limited edition Justin Bieber Purpose Tour t-shirt that I was rocking at the time. Uh, Thank God for growth and for memories. And uh, when it happened, it literally ripped the shirt off of my back. Off of my back. Now, just picture you're surrounded by dudes who are all wearing camo. They've all got beards, except for you. You're the only one in a Justin Bieber t-shirt, and that happens, okay? You are the laughing stock of the family from that point forward. And I remember like, they're laughing. No one's trying to be quiet anymore. Uh, no, they don't care. They're all, you know, their fishing poles are thrown. And, and I remember being so embarrassed and, and so mad that the, it was kind of like the heat of the moment. And in the heat of the moment, I just yelled out, I'm never fishing again. I'm never fishing again. Have you ever heard the, the phrase, you say things that you don't mean in the heat of the moment? You ever, you ever heard that phrase? I think that that phrase is a lie. I think more often than not, we say exactly what we mean in the heat of the moment. I think there are lots of times, sure, that when the moment uh, gets gets up there, when there's pressure, when, when there's things that happen to us, there are definitely a lot of times when we say things that we don't mean and we have to go back and apologize for them. But I think that there are more times in the heat of the moment, what we really feel, what we really mean just comes out. In John chapter 11, we are stepping into a heat of the moment situation. Sometimes when we read the Bible, it's hard to put the emotion into the reading. It's hard to put the feeling into the reading that the people in the story are experiencing, but make no mistake about it, these people are in the heat of the moment. Mary and Martha, two of Jesus' closest friends, they're in a town, a few towns away from where Jesus is, and their friend, their mutual friend, Lazarus is sick. He's, he's not just sick with the cold, like this is a dire situation, he's on his deathbed. And they decide we have got to figure out a way to get Jesus to come to us because he's the only person that can save our friend. This is the heat of the moment. And so what they decide to do, cause they don't have email, they don't have FaceTime, they don't have cell phones, they, they've got letters and they've got people who can run fast. And so they decide, let's write a letter to Jesus to convince Jesus to hurry and come heal our friends. I was thinking about, man, if if I was in this situation, if one of my friends was sick and I was in Nashville and Jesus was in Franklin and there were no cars and there was no technology, what would I put in the letter to Jesus? So I just went through this exercise and I wanna do it just with you this morning, if that's okay. Uh, Can you help me welcome my friend Connor Crumpton? Pastor Connor is our executive pastor here at Way Church. Make some noise for Connor. Connor, why don't you come right up over here? You're going to stand right here. Connor's the man. And um, I just want to just illustrate this, okay? Because I've uh, been thinking about it. And if I was in this situation, my letter would be the most descriptive. I mean, I would make Connor look like the most incredible. He is one of the most incredible people I've ever met, but I I would be like putting as much adjectives into that letter. I'd be using fancy words. I I would just be be trying to make Connor look as good as possible. So um, I wrote this letter. I'm gonna just recite it to you right now, okay? So dear Jesus, Connor is sick. Connor's not really sick. Um, Dear Jesus, Connor, the one who is a great dad to Victoria, the one who's a great uh, a great <laughs> a great husband <laughs> to Victoria <laughs> yeah, that's fine it's comp- A great dad <laughs> to Liam and Ledger. Connor, the one who moved from Texas with with literally just. Faith to help start Way Church. She was like, you know what? I feel like God's telling our family to do this. I know our family lives in Texas, and I know it'd be easier with kids to stay in Texas. I know I've got a great job in Texas. I know we've got friends in Texas. But he was like, you know what? God told us to do this. We're gonna make the sacrifice. We're gonna move when there was only six people apart of Way Church to Nashville, Tennessee, and get jobs. Uh, Dear Jesus, remember Connor? He's the one who cleans up all of Noah's messes on a weekly basis at Way Church. Uh, Jesus. You remember Connor, the one who oversees the systems and the missions at Way Church? Uh, you remember Connor, the one who's the first person at church on Sundays a lot of times and the last one to leave? I would just be, be writing all this stuff and I would end it with, Jesus, Connor is the one who loves you so much because this is the image that I would want Jesus to see of Connor. That would be what my letter sounded like and looked like, with the exception of the mess up with uh, his wife and his kids. (laughs) Because I want Jesus to see this image of Connor. And so when I'm reading what Mary and Martha write in the heat of the moment, I am shocked. Honestly, I'm reading it and I'm thinking in real time, man, you guys blew it. You had a whole piece of paper and you used five words. Jesus... The one you love is sick. That's crazy. I'm reading it and I'm thinking, man, Mary and Martha, this strategy, like, do you want Lazarus to die? You know, like, like that's all you put? Like, like, do you care about Lazarus? Like, like, you didn't list any of the stuff he did for God. You didn't list any of the, the things that he, he does. You, you didn't talk about how much Lazarus loves Jesus, how much he serves Jesus. You didn't talk about any of that. And then I realized, no, I'm the one who didn't get it because Mary and Martha knew Jesus really well, and they knew it wasn't Lazarus' accomplishments. They knew it wasn't his accolades. They knew it wasn't how he spent his time. They knew it wasn't even how great of a dad or a husband he was. They knew it wasn't how great of a servant he was. They knew it wasn't even about how much Lazarus loved Jesus but they knew that what would move Jesus the most was how much Jesus loved Lazarus. This right here is all it took. Can I just speak to you this morning? That this right here is all it takes in your life with Jesus. The things you do for God don't matter compared to this right here. Can I remind you that it was while you were a far ways off that Jesus went to the cross for you. It was in this stage before you did a single thing for him, before you had a reputation for serving him, before you could offer any sort of profound looking worship to Jesus. Jesus said, it's this version. Think about this. In the letter, they say the one you love is sick. They don't even mention Lazarus's name. They don't even mention Lazarus's name, but because they knew how much Jesus loved Lazarus, they didn't have to. This morning, Jesus loves you so much that when somebody says the one Jesus loves, he immediately thinks of you. There doesn't have to be any other descriptor because your identity, the thing that moved Jesus to the cross was how much he cared and loved for you. It's an unimaginable love. It's indescribable. If you tried to exaggerate that type of love your entire life, you could not exaggerate it if you tried. Because he looks at this version and says, that's the one that I love. Will you give it up for Connor? Connor can take a seat. Now, this revelation, it's changed my life, but, but how many of you know that this is the revelation that many people have when they accept Jesus? This is, this is revelation that, that causes people to give their life to Jesus. That's, that's what happened in my life. But that identity of being the one that Jesus loves, it's the same identity that we have when we've been following Jesus for 10 years and we keep messing up. It's the same identity that we have when we've been following Jesus and, and we keep struggling with the same hidden sin. And we keep struggling with the same stuff that maybe we were even struggling with before we started following Jesus. I I think for a lot of believers, it's really easy to go, I am the one who Jesus loves on the day of salvation. But it's really hard to believe I am the one that Jesus loves on the day of sin. I remember when I was a little kid, my dad was uh, teaching me how to ride a bike, I was like five or six years old. We lived in a neighborhood outside of Tampa, Florida, and um, it it was a great place to ride a bike. There were like wide roads. There was even some bike paths on some of the roads. Uh, But at six years old, once I got the hang of of really riding on this little mongoose bicycle, I decided the roads weren't for me, that I was just going to go wherever I wanted to. And uh, my dad one day caught me riding my bicycle from the top of someone's backyard all the way to the bottom of the cul-de-sac, like just left a line straight through their pedicured lawn. And so he brings me in and sits me down, and he's like, Noah, you're not allowed to ride your bike on anywhere except for the road. You, you, can't, uh, you can't ride it through people's yards, you can't do those things. And so naturally, the next day when my dad went to work, I went right back to the top of that hill and I came back down through their yard. Only this time, when I got towards the bottom of the yard, I lost control of the bike and I crashed into our neighbor's mailbox. Uh, And when I say crashed into it, I mean, I leveled it. Uh, The mailbox, rest in peace. Okay. It's gone. Like it's completely, it's ceased to exist. And so I knew in that moment, I had two options. Number one, when my dad got home that day, I could face my dad. Number two, I could move to Brazil. (laughs) And so my dad gets home and I, I was sitting at the table. I'm already like just, I, I remember uh, tears are welling up in my eyes before I even said anything. And he was like, no, what's wrong? I said, um, dad, uh, you know, the Patel is across the street. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, I rode my bike in their grass again. And uh, this time I hit their mailbox. <clears throat> and my dad said, you did that? I saw and, you know, he, I saw it when I pulled in, man, that thing is rest in peace, man. I, whoa. And I remember thinking, man, my dad is gonna kill me. And my dad goes, you stay right here. My dad walks across the street. And I remember I ran out into the garage because I was wondering what he was gonna do. And he walks across the street, he knocks on the door. I see him pointing at the mailbox, I see him talking. What I found out later is my dad went over there. He took the blame for the mailbox. And he said, he told the Patels, he said, hey, we're gonna fix this, me and my son, we're gonna go to the store, and like, that alone is a miracle. My dad can't fix nothing, all right? <laughs> okay, so it's like, we're gonna, we're gonna fix this mailbox. And so uh, we went to Home Depot, we went to this other store, we come out there, and for three hours, me and my dad fixed our neighbor's mailbox. And I still, in the back of my mind, I'm like, my dad's gonna kill me, here it comes, here comes the moment, and, and we go inside to the kitchen table, we just start eating dinner like nothing, like nothing happened. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like this is going to be really bad. He's working up to it. You know what I'm saying? Like he's, he's plotting something in his mind and he just didn't say anything. So finally, after dinner was over, I said, hey, dad, are you, are you mad? And I remember my dad just super gently, he looked at me and he said, no, because you told me, because you told me. He said, you can always tell me when you mess up. What would have made me mad is if you messed up and you didn't tell me. You see, when we start following Jesus and you know that you're the one who Jesus loves and then you mess up, we have this image that it just pops into our mind. No matter how much we know we're loved, no matter how much we know the grace of Jesus is true in our life, it's this image of of this feeling of shame that leads to an image of our dad that is not biblically accurate. And so we mess up and shame says, dad's going to kill me. But the reality is the gospel says, when we mess up, I need to call dad, I need to call dad. Why do I need to call dad? Because he's the one who loves me. Because he's the only one that can fix this broken mailbox. Because he's the only one who would walk across the street and knock on the door and say, it was my fault. Because he's the only one who will sit at the dinner table and go, I know that you messed up earlier today but I just wanna be with you because you are still the one that I love. You are the one that Jesus loves on the day of salvation. And you are the one that Jesus loves on the day of your worst failure. You are the one that Jesus loves the day that you recognized and realized that he's the Lord of your life. But you are also the one that Jesus loves on the same day that you're the biggest hypocrite that you've ever known. You are still the one that Jesus loves. Can I tell, going back to the story of, of my dad and I sitting at that table, you wanna know what his grace towards me did not cause me to do? It did not cause me to go back to the top of that hill the next day. I I was not like, I'm gonna go back up there because of how good my dad treated me. No, 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 I was amazed. I couldn't believe that that was the response that my dad gave me, you know what I'm saying? I was driving the next day and I was in the middle of that road. I was like, man, I am not going close to the grass. There's this thing like like a legalistic Christian will go, no, 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 that's that's grace gospel. Yeah, it is the grace gospel, but the grace gospel doesn't push me towards sin. It pushes me towards holiness. It reminds me, man, Jesus is so good to me. How could I not follow him? How could I not obey him? He's been so good to me. How could I not follow his instruction? This is what real grace does. It it doesn't cheapen the finished work of Jesus. It glorifies the finished work of Jesus. It says the cross is what allowed me to have this position at the table. My, My relationship with the father is what allows me to call him when I mess up. It is only when I live out the identity that I'm the one who Jesus loves that I begin to walk in freedom. You are the one who Jesus loves. One of my favorite observations in the Bible is following a man who called himself the one who Jesus loved, which is actually the person John who wrote the book of John that we read about. Um, All throughout the book of John, if if you ever read it, uh, which I would highly encourage you to read it, it's one of my favorite books in the Bible. uh, John refers to himself as the one who Jesus loves throughout the book of John, which is like cool until you think about writing a book where you call yourself the one who Jesus loves. And then it just becomes a little weird. You're like, dude, we get it. Jesus loved you. Why do you keep reminding us? I I can't remember exactly how many times it is, but but it's something like 78 times in the book of John, he refers to himself as the one who Jesus loves. He's trying to tell a story about them being at a tax collector's house. And he goes, Jesus was reclining on the one who Jesus loved. It's like, dude, it would be so much easier to say on you, (laughs) on you. But his identity was so rooted in that. And and, um, the reason I bring this up to you is because there's this really powerful observation. When Jesus goes to the cross, uh, you know, we all know uh, that Jesus had 12 disciples. And when Jesus actually goes to the cross, we only know where two disciples are when Jesus is hanging on the cross. There's only two that we know about. Uh, 12 men who watched Jesus heal people, who watched Jesus preach the word, who watched Jesus uh, sit at the supper and, and they broke bread and took communion together like we did this morning. And there's 12 of them there. But by the time Jesus goes to the cross, we only know where two of them are. And it's Peter and it's John. Let me remind you, Peter is the one at the communion table that Jesus says, by the end of the day tomorrow, you're gonna deny me not one time, not two times, but three times. And Peter goes, nope, not me not gonna do it, I love you too much, would never do it. And Jesus is like, okay. And the next day, Peter denies Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. Where is Peter? Whenever Jesus is hanging on the cross, he's hiding in shame. He's away from the cross. He, he's, he's acting like he doesn't know Jesus. The only other person that we know what is happening in their life when Jesus is hanging on the cross is John. John is at the foot of the cross while Jesus is hanging on it. He's at the foot of the cross. I remember when I first started thinking about that and I thought, man, how could 12 people who were that close to Jesus leave Jesus in his time of greatest pain and his time of greatest agony? How How could they do that? And then I thought, man, how could I do that? I forget Jesus all the time. I walk away from Jesus all the time. I turn my back on Jesus all the time. I choose dumb things all the time. I'm just like those other disciples, but John is at the foot of the cross. I don't think it's a coincidence that the one disciple whose identity was so rooted in Jesus's love for him, is the only one that is at the foot of the cross with Jesus. Can I tell you a secret as a follower of Jesus that I've only recently discovered, but it has changed everything about my walk with Jesus. If you make following Jesus about how much you love Jesus, your relationship will look like this. You'll be close to Jesus on the good days. You'll feel far from Jesus on the bad days. And it will be one massive roller coaster because your love fails, because your love is inconsistent, because your love is weak. But if you make your relationship with Jesus focused on how much Jesus loves you, even in life's darkest moments, you will find yourself at the foot of the cross. Even in life's most tumultuous moments, when you feel far from the Lord, when you get disappointing news, when things don't go your way, when you keep messing up over and over and over again, your mess ups won't keep you from Jesus, it'll push you to Jesus. Why? Because you are the one that Jesus loves. Your relationship with Jesus won't fail because his love doesn't fail. Your relationship with Jesus won't feel like a roller coaster because Jesus's love is consistent. Because it's not weak, it's strong. Because it doesn't have gaps, it's whole, it's all-encompassing, it chases you down. What I'm trying to get you to see is as a follower of Jesus, your identity is that you are the one that Jesus loves. I wanna close with this. When I was... Um, 21 years old, I flew out to Seattle, Washington to intern at a church. And I was out there for about four and a half months. When I was there, uh, they realized, man, this guy likes to talk. And so they were like, let's put him on the greeter team because he doesn't have a whole uh, lot lot of... uh, Of of giftings other than just talking and being loud and so they're like let's put them on the greeter team so put me out there and I was like the worst greeter I'm I'm so ADD but but when people started coming I I, I could be loud and I could get excited but there was this one guy who would come to church every Sunday at the early service he was in Kirkland Washington and every Sunday he would come and he would wear a t-shirt the same t-shirt that said free hugs that's what his T-shirt said. It was this black T-shirt with white letters that said free hugs. And this dude was a dude that you were kind of afraid of his hugs because he was about six foot six, 300 pounds. And um, he would walk in. I remember the, f- the first time I saw him, he's just like hugging people. And uh, I saw him coming towards me and I was like, this is gonna be amazing. And he, and he hugged me, and he almost killed me. And-, and he was also super sweaty. And I was like, ah, you know, like, this is not my favorite hug. And so every Sunday after that, he would come and I would see him and, and I'm not going to lie, I would kind of try to avoid him because I was like, I do not want to be hugged by this guy. And I remember one Sunday, it was the middle of the summer. I see him walking up and I can already see the sweat on him and I can see him and he's making eye contact with me. And I'm like, oh no. <laughs> and then he comes straight up to me and he picks me up and I just like went limp like a noodle. <laughs> just like let him hug me. For whatever reason, I was Um, preparing this talk, I just remembered that because I think this is exactly what happens in our life with Jesus. He's just trying to be with us. He's just trying to hold us. He's just trying to remind us of how much he loves us and let that be the starting place. And he picks us up and we're like, man, will you just let me down? Will you just let me down so I can go back and do my job? Will you just let me down so I can go back to my post and serve you? We you just put me down? This is uncomfortable. People, people are looking. You just, you just put me down? I don't, I don't deserve this. I feel like what the Holy Spirit wanted me to say to Way Church was that we need to learn to hug back. just want to get really good at hugging back. God, thank you. I don't deserve it, but I'm the one you love. Will you close your eyes? If you're here today and you've never had that realization, you've never accepted Jesus, but you'd like to, will you just slip up your hand? I'd like to have a relationship with Jesus today thank you so much. It's amazing. We're going to just pray this prayer uh, with you together. Just everybody is going to say this. And before we do, I just want to tell you, person who raised your hand, that um, the power of this prayer is not in repeating this prayer, it's in believing this prayer. And so all we have to do to accept the gift of salvation from Jesus to, to become in relationship with Jesus. All we have to do is believe what we're about to pray. We just have to believe that, that we were sinners and that sin actually separates us from God. And so God sent his only son, Jesus, who lived a perfect life to die on a cross, to be a sacrifice for us. He literally turned himself into sin so that our soul could experience freedom and life forever so we're going to pray this prayer and you just have to believe that and declare that God is Lord in your life and you get eternal life. You get to go to heaven, but, but more than that, you get to experience eternal life here on this earth. The kingdom of heaven now gets to enter into your life and your soul as you follow Jesus here on earth. So can everyone just say this together? Dear Jesus, thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. I give you all my sin. Take it all. The ones I remember and the ones that I don't. Thank you for your blood that cleanses me. I want to follow you for the rest of my life. I want to be with you today and forever. You are Lord and I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, can we praise God right now? Come on, we can do better than that.